good morning or good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are. Today I'm going to be taking a look at 1 Samuel, uh, some stories from the life of David, uh, which is exciting for me. Uh, David's perhaps been one of my favorite Bible characters um, ever since I was a child. I've always enjoyed hearing and reading stories of the life of David um, to varying degrees at different times in my life. But I guess something I'm thinking about right now is stories in general. Why is it that stories affect us so greatly? We like stories. We love stories. We, we almost seem like we are designed to respond to stories. Uh, stories entertain us. Stories um, sometimes instruct us. Stories may resonate with us, and the best of stories can change our lives. Let me tell you briefly uh, a story related to the stories, actually, that we're going to talk about today um, that changed my life, actually. And at least initially, it wasn't a story from the Bible, as you might think it would be. It was actually something ver uh, rather different. So uh, to tell you the story, I've got to go back quite a number of years. Um, I've been out of college a long time. I teach at a college now. But many, many years ago, uh, when I was fresh out of college, 21 years old, doing some graduate work up at the University of Hartford and, and living um, in a home where I was renting a room from a staff member from the University of Hartford, I was a little bit depressed one evening. I, I wasn't really myself. Some difficult things had been going on, and um, I, I really needed something just to distract me, to take me out of myself for a moment. I hadn't brought any of my books with me. I didn't really have anything to watch on TV, um, but I looked around and saw that my landlady had a copy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien, and I had read that particular fantasy trilogy um, a number of years ago, I'm pretty sure, when I was a teenager at that point. Um, but it was the only thing I had to read, so I decided I'll just go ahead and reread it. Now, um, I, I read it pretty much straight through nonstop. I don't remember if I took one day or two days. I do remember that when I finally finished reading it, it was two or three in the morning. And again, I, I don't know how much straight through I had gone, but I, I read that pretty much nonstop. It was very, very engaging. It really sort of drags you in, um, has a lot of uh, descriptive language. Uh, which some people love about it and some people don't like it so much. Uh, but for me, it really did a great job of immersing me in another world and taking me completely out of the situations that I was in in my own life. Um, and, and for the moment, that was a very good thing. So when I finished it, though, of course, I cast around, well, what do I do now? Um, you know, I finished reading it. It was the only novels that I had available to read. I really didn't know what to do with myself at that point. But then I remembered I had made a promise uh, to read the Bible. Uh, for reasons I'm not going to get into. Uh, I had promised to do this. I was not a Christian at the time. I had been brought up in a Jewish home, had been fairly observant in sort of a liberal, um, reformed Judaism uh, manner. Uh, but at this point in my life, you know, the time I'm talking about, I was pretty much an atheist. Uh, but I had promised to read the Bible, and it had been slow going, and it really didn't appeal to me much, but I had promised to do it. And it just so happened that as I was reading through the Bible at this point in my life, I was actually reading from the life of David in First and Second Samuel. So I decided, okay, I don't have anything better to read. Let me go ahead and read the Bible. So I started reading the Bible. And surprise, surprise, it came alive to me. It was exciting. It was interesting. And the reason it was, was because the style of writing, and I'm not even sure if I can quantify why this is, to be honest. I'm a biologist. I'm, I'm not a lit major. Um, but the style of writing was somehow very similar to, uh, you know, in the Bible. 
um, looking at the life of David, these historical portions of the Bible, these stories from the Bible, very, very similar in style and in some ways even in worldview to what I had just read in, in The Lord of the Rings. Now, when you read a good book or you know, watch a good movie or, you know, or, or looking at an engaging TV show, uh, very often what we do, at least what I do, is I suspend disbelief. That is, in the back of my head, I might know, well, you know, these things I'm looking at, they're not real. There are no such thing as wizards. There are no such thing as superheroes. People can't really do the types of things that these people are doing. But I suspend that disbelief. I shove it way to the back of my thoughts because I want to be able to be engaged in the story. and I want to be able to enjoy the story. And, and so I read or watch the story as if it was real. And I was doing that with the Bible. And that, of course, had a transforming effect on my life because the, for the first time in my life, I was reading the Bible with excitement, thinking, at least on the surface, it was all real and it was all important. And as a result of that, God opened up my mind and my heart to himself over a long, long period of time and doing various other things in my life. Um, but this was really the start, I think, of God really opening my mind to the truths of his word and eventually leading me to put my faith in Christ as my savior, or from a Jewish point of view, as, as my Messiah, as the one who had been promised and who had come and who had died in my place. That was a wonderful, wonderful thing many, many years ago. So what I'd like to invite you to do today is I'd like to invite you to do something similar. Now, you might already be a believer. You might have known Christ perhaps for many years, maybe for a short time. You might not be a believer, but either way, I'd like to invite you to do the same type of thing. That is, as we look at these stories from the life of David, suspend disbelief if that's necessary. Look at these stories as if they're true and real and important, which, by the way, they are true and real and important. But whether you believe that or not, sort of just take them at face value and seek to learn from them and be open to what is worth learning from these stories, because I think there's some really wonderful things that we can learn from these stories. So let's, let's look at the first of these. We're going to look at two different stories, one in 1 Samuel um, chapter 24 and the other one in 1 Samuel chapter 26. And we'll probably look at the first of the two maybe in a little bit more detail. We'll see how as time goes on. So let's turn. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Um, your version, if you've got something a little bit different translation, might be slightly different, probably won't be too different. Um, verse... 1 of chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, reads as follows. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So Engedi is a beautiful place. Um, I went there a few years ago uh, with my wife. Um, it's on the west shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, it's a very, very rocky uh, place. Crags, caves, waterfalls, cliffs. Um, a lot of scenic beauty, and it was also a great place for David and his men to hide themselves. It's one of the few places uh, in that general area where there's water flowing. This is a desert climate where there's water flowing year-round from actually, I think it's four different springs in various spots. So anyway, there in Engedi, there is David hiding himself, and Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. 3,000. David has 600. So this is six, no, five to one odds. Not good odds for David. Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Saul wouldn't have seen them coming in. It would have been pretty dark. His eyes wouldn't have been used to things. And I'm sure David and his men stayed really quiet, 
probably not all 600 of his men. This is probably a smaller group in this cave. Anyway, so David and his men are sitting in the inner recesses. Okay, Saul has gone in, it says, to relieve himself. We don't really know what's going on there. That might have been a euphemism for the fact that he basically had to use the bathroom. It might be that um, he needed a place to just literally rest. Uh, the literal translation of to relieve himself is to cover his feet. So maybe he was just going to take a nap. We really don't know. But for whatever reason, David, uh, David is there in the cave. Saul is there. David can't see him. Verse 4, and the men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, and, and there's no record, by the way, that the Lord ever said this next statement. I think they're making an assumption. Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. And then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Not quite sure exactly why he did that. Maybe because he was going to fall through and do something to Saul, or maybe for other reasons. But either way, in verse 5 it says, it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him. He didn't feel good about what he had done because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, far be it from, uh, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So he's referring to Saul as the Lord's anointed. Saul had been appointed by God as king of Israel. God had revealed to Saul um, as well as to David that David was going to be his replacement which is why, by the way, that Saul is chasing David and has been chasing the David at this point in his life for a number of years and wants to kill David. But Saul was still the anointed one of God, the one who had been appointed as king of Israel. And so David says, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words, which was probably not an easy thing to do, because they figured, hey, this is a great chance. We can get Saul dead. And he didn't allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, went his way. Now, David was a relatively young man at this point. He's maybe, you know, mid-20s, maybe 24 years old or so. Um, but he's a man who's got a lot of experience under his belt already. He's been chased for years by Saul. Um, he's accumulated this band of about 600 people who are loyal to him, and yet they are in danger of their lives constantly. And here David has truly a golden opportunity to take revenge, but at the same time, not just take revenge against this man who's trying to kill him, but also to protect his own life and to open the door for him to ascend to the throne. Talk about a golden opportunity. His men thought that he should go ahead and do it, but he didn't. He didn't. Why? We have to ask. Why? Why didn't he do it? Well, he didn't do it because it's something we should all really know, right? Opportunity does not necessarily mean that what we have an opportunity to do is something we should do. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. Um, sometimes there are opportunities that are wonderful and we jump, jump into them and it's great, but other times there's opportunities to do things that deep down we know are really not the best thing to do. And if we're believers in the Lord Jesus, perhaps deep down we know this probably isn't what God wants for us, and yet it's so tempting. It could be something like lying or cheating at school to get a good grade or on your job to advance your career, or maybe an opportunity to stay in or get into a romantic relationship that you sort of know, not really the best idea, isn't maybe what God would want for you, but, but you do it anyway because it's so tempting. Maybe it's an opportunity more like what David had to hold a grudge 
to take revenge and get back at someone um, who we consider to be an enemy. And yet when we have opportunities, that doesn't mean it's what we should do. It's not what David did. David didn't see Saul just as a deadly enemy. He saw him as one placed in authority by God, and we'll talk more about that later. And so for him, it was wrong for him to kill Saul. And that was a tough decision to make, but he made the right choice, and we should too when we're faced with those decisions. Very familiar verse, two verses to consider along that line from Proverbs. Uh, probably many of you have memorized this. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Notice it doesn't say don't have any understanding. It's okay for us to have understanding. It's okay for us to think things through. It's okay for us to have desires, things that make sense to us, things that don't. God's given us a brain. It has given it to us to use, but he doesn't want us to lean exclusively on that. He wants us to seek his will. Verse six in Proverbs chapter three says, in all your ways, in everything in your life, acknowledge him, know him, live in the light of his reality and his existence. And I think implicitly seek his guidance as David did many times in his life. And he, that is God, here in Proverbs 3, will make your path straight. We know that verse. The question is, do we live that verse out? And it's a, a smart thing for us to do if, if we believe that God really knows best. Um, verse 8 of First uh, Samuel 24. Now afterwards, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Notice he calls Saul his lord, the king. He bows. He goes all the way down to the ground. He's showing great humility and great respect to this man who's been trying to kill him. Why? Not because he admires Saul as a person, but because this is someone who God has appointed in authority. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the men, or words of men, saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe, did not kill you. No one perceived there's no evil or rebellion in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15, the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he, that is God, see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David shows respect to Saul, but David also twice over says that he sees God as the one who's going to be judge. We can do that too. You know, as believers, as we relate to other people, we seek to have good relationships where possible, but sometimes that doesn't work out. But when it doesn't work out and people become our adversaries, ultimately, God is the one who's going to deal with that. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, Verses 18 through 21, I'm not going to read that whole passage, but verse 18 of Romans 12 says, If possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. It says, so far as depends on you. It's not always possible. But we should be at peace with all men, with all the people that we encounter when we can. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Skipping to verse 21 in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to seek to trust God, to be at peace with people when we can. When we make enemies and they do things we shouldn't, 
Rather than being vengeful, we should be trusting and resting in God to take care of us. That doesn't mean you don't protect yourself. If you or your loved ones are in danger, of course, that's a different story. But we're not looking for revenge. We're looking to trust God to work in this situation. And maybe God will bring that person to repentance. Maybe they will come to a knowledge of Christ. Um, maybe not. Maybe God will need to judge them uh, in a sort of a sad sense for them one day. But either way, that's in God's hands. And that's what David did. And, and even in a greater sense, when you think about it, that's what our Lord Jesus did. You know, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, we read of Christ that while being reviled, and this would probably be primarily in the lead up to the cross and on the cross itself, while being reviled, and he was mocked, reviled, and of course, scourged and crucified, he did not revile in return while suffering, which is when it's easiest to lash out at others. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And we can do the same thing by his grace. In the rest of this chapter in uh, 1 Samuel 24, Saul weeps before David, maybe just out of relief at not getting killed. He acknowledges David was righteous. He knows David will be king. And he also, in some of what he says, seems to imply if the situations were reversed, he might have killed David. Um, and you can read that for yourself. Uh, chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, which I think I'm going to move through a little bit quicker. It's got some similar themes in it. Once again, there is David in the wilderness. He's not in, in Gedi this time, uh, but he encounters Saul. And I'm skipping the first few verses of the chapter. Um, and Saul is camping nearby him. David sends out some spies. He knows where Saul is. This is probably at least one, maybe two years after uh, the incident that we read about in chapter 24. And so one or two years later, Saul is still chasing him. Saul's still trying to kill him. Uh, apparently the quote-unquote repentance that Saul had wasn't for real. And David is in danger of his life. And this must have been unbelievably stressful for David when you think about it. Okay, David is going through a really deep trial for a prolonged period of time, running for his life. And hopefully most of us don't end up in a situation where we're running for our lives. But some of us have some pretty deep and prolonged trials, right? It might be illness for yourself. It might be illness for someone in your family. I can remember for many, many years watching my father, sadly, man who I love dearly, die of a neurodegenerative disease and, and the complications thereof. It might be financial difficulties. It might be relationship issues. How did God use this in David's life? He used it to train David. He used it to prepare David for the future. He used it to prepare David to be the leader he was meant to be. And he used this to teach David in his relationship with the Lord in such a way that David was able to write the Psalms that he did, something like half of all the 150 Psalms, which have been a blessing in the lives of literally millions of people. God did all those things through the difficulties David was going through. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, very familiar verses, we read, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, God is at work in our lives, using all the different things happening in our lives, including the difficulties, and working them all out for good, he may not have been the one who sent the difficulties, but he can use them. And he's working all those things to good to make us more like the Lord Jesus and to do wonderful things in and through our lives. And we can trust him to do that just as much or even more as he did that in David's life.
Well, in the in, um, middle portion of the chapter, verses 5 to 13 in 1 Samuel 26, uh, just very quickly, David arose. He came to the place where Saul was camp camped. Verse 7, so David and Abishai, who was uh, David's uh, nephew, came by night, uh, came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, Abner, which is Saul's general, and the people were lying around him. And Abishai said to David, today God's delivered your enemy into your hand. Therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I won't strike him a second time. Um, Abishai, again, sees this as a golden opportunity. There he is. He's sleeping. Everyone's sleeping. Here's the spear. All I have to do is take that spear up, strike it down. Saul's dead. Your troubles are over. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? And David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Maybe God will strike him down. Or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because of sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. And so God had miraculously taken these 3,000 people, basically put them to bed so soundly that they didn't wake up even when uh, David and Abishai came into and left the camp. David had once again golden opportunity to kill Saul. Why doesn't he do it? Because he respects God's authority and he wants to do things God's way. He wants to please the Lord. Saul is God's anointed king. David's not going to fight against that. David knows that Saul, that Saul can be taken out of the way by God, whether by natural or supernatural means, and he can trust God to work things out. And I think that's an amazing example for us. Look, naturally, all of us want to do things our way, right? All of, thing, all of us, or pretty much all of us probably, don't enjoy authority. We all tend to rebel against authority to some degree. And there's all kinds of authorities in our lives. You know, as, as uh, children, we have parents. And, and even when we get older, we still have parents very often, for as long as, as we're privileged to have them, who may you know, try to tell us how things should be done. And there's elders in, in a local church. And there's secular authorities, like those in our place of employment and the government. And it's natural for us to think we know better than them and rebel against those authority. Maybe not to try to kill them, as David was tempted to do with Saul, but to rebel against them and not want to accept that authority. And yet what God calls us to do is to be submissive to those in authority, just as David was called to be submissive to, to uh, Saul. Um, authority in the family, if you look at Ephesians 5 and 6, which we don't have time to look at, you can see some things about that. Uh, uh, being submissive to elders in the local church, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Hebrew 13.17, 1 Peter 5 verses 2 through 6, um, submitting to those at our workplace as unto the Lord, that would be Ephesians 6, and submitting to those in government, the first few verses of Romans 13. But the key point here, and you can look at those verses for yourself, but the key point is when we submit to authority that God has put in place or allowed, we're submitting we're doing it submitting to God. It doesn't mean there's never exceptions to that. There was an exception that happened in the time of the apostles, uh, as we read in the book of Acts, I believe it's uh, chapter 5, where basically the, uh, the government authorities, the Jewish authorities, had told Peter and the other apostles that they could not 
proclaim the name of Christ. And, and Peter said, we have to obey God rather than men. You're, you're telling us to not do something that God has explicitly told us to do. And of course, there's other times where governmental authority might tell us to do something that God has explicitly told us not to do. We have to obey God rather than men. But in general, we're called to be submissive to authority because it's, it's our way of being submissive to what God would have us to do. In the remainder of the chapter, once again, uh, there is Saul interacting with David. Uh, Saul says some pretty amazing things. Saul says, I've sinned in verse 21 of, of 1 Samuel 26. Return, my son, David, for I will not harm you because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I've played the fool and committed a serious error. Boy, that sounds really repentant. The sad thing is, as far as we know, it wasn't for real. Uh, and Saul, David probably knew it wasn't for real because he didn't re uh, return with Saul. It was a momentary emotional experience that Saul had, but it wasn't true repentance. Um, and that really leads us into the last thing I'd like to talk about before we finish uh, today. I'd like to just think briefly about these two men, Saul and David. You know, Saul, who's sort of the bad guy in all this, Saul wasn't a monster. Uh, Saul wasn't some kind of like, you know, mustache twirling villain or something who was just out to be mean and kill people and be evil. He wasn't that type of person. Um, Saul was just someone whose priorities were all messed up and didn't have a relationship with with, uh, with the Lord God and therefore was just living on the, on the level of a natural man, which is easy to do. We all can do that. Uh, his priorities were pretty much self first, family second, his nation third, and God maybe a distant fourth at most. Expediency, self-interest were his guides, and that's pretty much the way that people tend to be even today. It's the way that we tend to be apart from the grace of God. Um, the Lord had said Saul would be replaced, but Saul didn't have to die in the process. It didn't have to be a messy thing. And I think in uh, 1 Samuel 24 and 26 in these accounts we've looked at, this very well may be God giving Saul a last chance to realize how wrong he was and submit to God and perhaps turn to him in faith. And sadly, as far as we know, he never did that. And like Saul, we are naturally speaking rebels against God. Uh, Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we tend to rebel against God, against his ways, his authority. We don't like his priorities. We have our own. And the Lord Jesus came to die in the place of rebels like us, that we might be forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God. If by any chance someone who's watching this has not yet accepted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity. Saul had a couple of last opportunities and he blew them, and not horribly long after this, he died. Um, hopefully you'll have a long life, whoever is watching this. Um, and yet, if you haven't trusted Christ as Savior, you never know when your last opportunity is going to be. I would encourage you to trust in the one who died, the just for the unjust. He's the just. You, me, all of us, we're the unjust. He died for us. We can receive him as Savior and be forgiven. Um, and, and then looking just briefly at the life of David, quite a contrast to Saul. Um, David was not a perfect man by any means. You see some of the things that David did in 1 Samuel. He made his mistakes. 2 Samuel, we see some even bigger mistakes being recorded. Um, but he was a man after God's own heart. And sometimes we think of that just in terms of his feelings because, you know, it talks about the heart. Heart right over here. Um, and, and so we think, oh, you know, he wrote the Psalms, he enjoyed praising God, he was excited about God. That's what it means 
for him to be a man after God's own heart. And all that is true, of course. He did love praising God, and that's a wonderful thing to love. Um, but he went beyond just the things that he said. He lived a life of trust and obedience in the Lord, again, for the most part. And what was his motivation in that? Well, if you look at Psalm 27, just a single verse, verse 8 says, David wrote, When thou didst say, Seek my face, my heart said to thee, Thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. David's heart was set on the Lord. David had come to know God, fallen in love with the Lord, I think is obvious through his Psalms, um, and come to trust God and desired to please him. He desired to please him. You, you think if there's someone in your life who you know loves you deeply, unconditionally, and you trust their judgment, and they ask you to do something, do you do it because you feel like you have to? Or do you do it because you want to make them happy, because you trust their judgment, because you respect them? And that's really what God asks us to do, sort of like what David did, even if imperfectly. The Lord Jesus said the night before he died in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you say you love me, but if you do love me, you will keep my commandments. And in the next chapter, John 15, verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If Christ is our Savior and we know his love, we have the opportunity, and it is an amazing opportunity, we have the opportunity to respond to that love, to trust him, to respect him enough, and desire to please him and make him happy by doing the things he asks us to do. It's not because we have to do it, because we don't. He'll love us no matter what, and we're on our way to heaven no matter what because of what Christ did on our behalf. But we can respond to his love by seeking to please him. We can trust him, we can show respect to him, and we can respond to his love. David wasn't perfect, but this is what he did. Even in the midst of difficulty and hard times, he sought to do what God wanted him to, to refrain from God, what God wanted him to refrain from, and to do the will of the one whom he had come to know and love. And we have the marvelous opportunity to do the same types of things. Let's just pray briefly. Father, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his perfect example, far better than David. And yet we thank you for the example of David. And we wish to learn from that example and be those who would be ever more deeply falling in love with you so that when you say to our hearts, seek my face, our hearts would say, thy face, O Lord, I will seek. And not just in our words, but with our lives, that we would seek to do what you want us to do, to refrain from what you want us to refrain from, for your glory and in response to your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.